4, verses 1 through 8. It is difficult to make it through this life without ever facing any trouble. And the problem when we face trouble is that trouble always has the potential to rob us of our joy. David in this psalm and in the psalm we looked at last Sunday night wants us to understand that God is with us even in the most difficult times and can give to us peace and rest. Psalm 4, verses 1 through 8, and in honor of the reading of God's Word, let's stand. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Let us pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you for the reading of your perfect and infallible word in our midst this evening. And Father, we just ask that as we study your word, that you would give to us trust in you, that you would cause us to rest in your provision. God, we ask that as you illumine the heart and mind of David when you gave to him this perfect and infallible psalm, that you would illumine our hearts and minds this evening as well. God, we love you so much, and we offer to you our love, our lives, and this prayer. In and through the name of our risen Lord and Master, Jesus, who is the Christ, amen. You may be seated. Few people have ever heard the name Epi, let me get her name. Epi Letterer, but she gained fame writing an advice column that was carried in hundreds of newspapers using the pen name Ann Landers. Millions of people sought her advice on every imaginable subject, and she once said, if I were asked to give what I consider the single most useful bit of advice for all humanity, it would be this. Expect trouble as an inevitable, inevitable part of life. Trouble never ceases in this earthly life, and no one understood that better than Job. In Job 14.1, Job put it this way. He said, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Now, you know, 
We might think that that was kind of a, a, a negative outlook, that Job was going through an awful lot and, and, and his basic outlook on it was life stinks and then you die. But that's not what Job is saying at all. Job recognizes, Job is coming at this from the perspective of God. Now, obviously, he doesn't have the full perspective of God because God hasn't spoken in Job yet. But, but Job is maintaining his innocence, and he understands that, that life is filled with turmoil. He understands that no one has a right to, to expect to make it through this life without encountering some trouble. Many of the Psalms deal with these adverse circumstances because we experience so much trouble in this life. You know, that's what makes the Bible so wonderful to me is that, you know, you look in, in the other holy books, you look in, in, in the Quran, you look in the, uh, in the holy books of Hindus and a, and a Buddhist, and, and there's just not any guidance for, for going through trouble. It's just an expected part of life. You know, you, you put on a stiff upper lip and you do the best that you can is their advice. But God spends an awful lot of his word talking about the difficult times that we as humans face on a regular basis and telling us that he is going to be with us through all of it. As in the previous psalm, David finds peace through prayer and through trusting God to help him. And what he does is he pours out his heart to God, and because he has poured out his heart to God, and he has this deep and abiding trust for God, verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He's being pursued by a superior military force. He's being pursued by a younger and fitter military force. And David, he does have some men encircled around him. He does have a military force protecting him. It's small. They're well-trained. They're highly devoted. Okay, these are men that to a man would die to protect David. They would gladly lay down their life to protect David. But David says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, Make me to dwell in safety. David wants us to understand that God alone gives us peace and causes us to dwell in safety. Verse 1. David called upon the Lord to act righteously on his behalf. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now, David is not full of himself. He's not saying, God, I, I'm a righteous man, and, and, and I don't deserve this. Okay? We could spend a lot of time arguing whether David deserved this or not. Okay? I mean, honestly, soap operas in, in, in our world are tame compared to, to the Old Testament accounts of David and Solomon. I mean... You know, if we put a soap opera on where a man had uh, 300 wives and 700 concubines, nobody would believe that story, okay? If we tried to put a story on like David's life, nobody would believe that something like that could actually happen. 
And so David is not saying, God, I, I'm a righteous man. I, I've got all of this filled up. He, he is saying in, in verse 1, God, any righteousness that is in my life comes from you. It comes from you. Answer me when I call because you are the God of my righteousness. However good I am, it is because of your activity in my life. And David, David, sometimes it seems like David's getting, you know, kind of uppity with God. Answer me when I call. Answer me when I call. You know? David recognizes that God has made a covenant with him, with him personally. And so what David is doing is he is asking God to respond on the basis of the covenant that God has made with him. David trusts God and he trusts the covenant. He knows that God is always going to act in accordance with the covenant that he made with David. And he had faith that God would act to bring about that which was right against those who had falsely accused him. Now, the one thing that the Bible teaches us about prayer is that, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul will take. Now, we teach our children that, and, and obviously it's good to teach our children how to pray as young, as young children to, to begin to talk to God. But as they get older, we need to teach them, and we need to let them see us wrestling with God. They need to see that there is passion in our prayer. There is passion in David's prayer. David is not just saying, well, God, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in a mess, and if you could see your way clear, I'd, I'd love for you to, you know, to get involved and, and, and kind of work this out for me. There is passion in David's prayer. There was passion in Jesus' last prayer on earth. He prayed so hard that he sweat blood. David wasn't just throwing up a word salad to heaven and hoping that some of it would, would gain God's attention. Okay? I mean, how many of us, when we pray, we pray these kind of vague prayers? All right? You know? It, it, it's kind of like, you know, when, when somebody comes in and, 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 and they ask me to do something, and, and they've given me kind of ambiguous desires, what it is they want. And I'm like, if you'll tell me what you want me to do, I'll do it, okay? But, but I, can't, I can't act on anything that you've said so far, okay? David is specific. Let me try that again. David is specific in what he's praying for. And there is passion in his prayer. He's not just, you know, saying his, his evening prayers before he goes to bed. He is doing business with God. Now, it's not that we persuade God by emotional displays. You know, 
They're a group of people, mainly in the Philippines, that around Easter time, they will flagellate themselves. They will carry a, a, a flagellum around and they will flagellate their back and make their back bleed. And many of them will, or some of them will have themselves literally nailed to a cross uh, on, on Easter time. You know what? That doesn't impress God. That doesn't impress God. God's not after us doing just emotional displays. God's not into us doing a whirling dervish. But God wants us to have skin in the game. God wants us to be passionate about what we're praying for. God wants us to care enough about what we're praying for that, that we put some effort and some thought into what we're asking Him about. And so David is pouring out his heart to God. He's stirring himself up to take hold of God. Now, Scripture tells us to do exactly as David did. We're going to see as we make our way through this psalm that David is not asking God to take vengeance. Okay? He is not asking God to take vengeance on his son and those that are coming after him. What David is interested in is repentance. Okay? Why? Well, here's a man that has learned firsthand the value of repentance. He knows what repentance looks like. He knows what repentance feels like. Restore unto me, O God, the joy of my salvation. He knows what it feels like when you have unconfessed sin in your life, and he knows what it feels like when you confess that sin and God forgives it. And so what David is aiming for here is not that God would take Absalom and, 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 and his men out. He is asking, he is saying, God, I want justice in my land, and what I want is repentance. God's previous deliverance gave David confidence that he would surely rise for him again. Distress literally means a narrow or a tight place. You know? We would say, well, I'm in kind of a pinch right now. Okay? And that's what David is saying. He's saying, Lord, I'm in kind of a pinch right now. I'm in a tight place. I, I, I don't have many options in front of me. I, there's not any way that I'm going to be able to deal with this. And where David says, you have relieved me, it means to broaden or to set it large, to bring out into an open place. This is not David's first rodeo. He has been in tight places before. And God has never failed to deliver him. And so David is looking back to go forward. David is looking back at how God has responded in the past, confident that he will continue to respond in that way in the present and in the future. 
David prayed in full assurance that God would answer him. And you know, we have that same privilege. Look at what David said last week back in Psalm 3, verse 4. I was crying to Yahweh with my voice. In other words, he wasn't just going. What if at the beginning of the service I said, let us pray, and then I didn't pray out loud? I mean, I know we do that from time to time, and there's a place in public worship for a time of quiet, meditative prayer. But David cried out to the Lord with his voice, and then he says, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Stop and think about that. I cried out to God with my voice. God answered me. We have the same privilege, beloved. We have the same privilege that David had with God that we can go into God's presence with the full assurance that God will answer us. Throughout David's life, God had given him relief from distress. One commentator said this, Power in prayer comes in part from our memories. Satan wants to make us forget the answers to prayer which we have already received. You know, there's a song that was popular a few months ago. I can't even remember who sang it. But the the chorus of the song was, God, do it again. God, do it again. I've seen you move. God, do it again. I've seen you act. God, do it again. I've seen you bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. God, do it again. We tend to have short memories. And David is looking back over all of the times that God has been involved in his life. And David is of the conviction that God uh, was involved in my life before and he will do it again. He loves us enough to give us His own Son and He will not fail us. In Romans 8.23, He, or 32, I'm sorry, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Beloved, God showed us how much He was willing to give to us. He gave us His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us eternal life if we will but believe. He gave to us salvation full and free. How will He not also with Jesus freely give us all of the other things that we bring before His throne? He will always show Himself strong on our behalf. And he will always prove sufficient for our every need. David used past mercy as a ground for future help. He said, God, I know you haven't blessed me to this point to abandon me, so please have mercy on me. Verses 2 through 5. David turns from addressing God to addressing his enemies. 
And we saw last week that David was, was struggling with what was going on. And in this psalm, his attitude is different. Because in the other psalms, he calls on God to pour out his wrath on his foes. We saw last week that the people that are after David are his son and his fellow countrymen. Former friends and leaders in his administration and in his army. David does not desire their destruction. He desires their repentance. David then says, O sons of men, how long Will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. Now, this might seem like an unusual place to pause, okay? But I think it's a great place to pause. How long? How long are you going to run against God? How long are you going to let your pride and your hubris determine your life? How long are you going to stand against God's anointed? How long are you going to live in rebellion to God? David says, I want you to come to a full stop and think deeply about that question. Our tendency like those that were against David is not to pause. Because if we did stop and think about it, really stop and think about it, from God's perspective, we wouldn't be able to continue doing as we pleased. David's enemies were not going to be able to prevail against him because God was with him. God had set David unto himself. He was God's choice, and God had made a covenant with David to confirm it. David was unshakably confident of whose prayers God would hear and answer. You know, back in in 1st and 2nd Kings, we read about another time like that. It tells us that Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three years. And Jezebel got really mad. She didn't like what Elijah was doing. She didn't like that Elijah was talking smack about her and about her gods. And Elijah said, I tell you what, Miss Jezebel, we'll, I, got, I got a plan. Let's go up on the mountain. And we're going we gonna to get your priest, the priest of Baal, and we're going we, to have me, and we're going to see who comes after this sacrifice that... that, that that we lay out. Jezebel allowed that was a good idea, and so Elijah went up on that mountain. And he said, boys, I'll tell you what, I'll let y'all go first. I have so much trust in my God, I'm going to let y'all go first. And so those boys got up there, and, and, and they were doing their thing, and, and they were dancing around and, and calling out to Baal. Listen, I don't think I'm ruining anybody's life. If you've got young ones watching, you might want to mute the, the, the feed for a minute. 
You know, I, I'd love for Santa Claus to bring me a special something for, for Christmas. All right? Now, I know good and well. Santa Claus ain't bringing me nothing. Okay? Why in the world would, would, I, would I think, you know, go on like that? These boys that are worshiping Baal, they know he doesn't exist. They know he doesn't exist. You have to be pretty foolish to believe that Baal exists. And yet they're out there doing a whirling dervish and they're cutting themselves and flying into all kinds of frenzy. And Elijah's sitting over there, boys, you might want to try a little bit harder. He might be in the toilet. Can't hear you. Finally, Elijah said, y'all done? Is it my turn yet? Oh, it is? All right. Let's pray. Father God, let it rain. Let it rain. And God brought rain. And God consumed, consumed that sacrifice. I know I'm conflating two different stories here. But I just want you to understand that Elijah prayed that, that same kind of prayer. There was a situation in my life not too long ago where I prayed that same kind of prayer. I said, God, I'm coming to you the way that Elijah came to you. I got somebody praying for something, and I'm praying for the exact opposite. And God, I just pray that you would glorify yourself by answering this prayer the way that you answered Elijah's prayer. David was unshakably confident of whose prayer God was going to answer. Along with his enemies' false ambitions, their prayers were also in vain. God would hear David not because God was on David's side, but because David was on God's side. David knew that God would hear when he called to him. All Christians should have the same assurance. We should be confident that God will hear our prayers. When prayer seems ineffective, we ought to take a spiritual inventory and see if there's a reason for unanswered prayer. Bible tells us there's several reasons in, in Matthew or in John 15:7. It tells us if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Not abiding in Jesus is a reason that our prayers might not be answered. Matthew 17, 20 and 21. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. You know, have you ever prayed that prayer to God and say, God, I am just struggling with my faith. And, and, and your word says that if I would have faith that is as small as a mustard seed that I can look at yonder mountain and say be gone and it would move and Lord I can't even come up with that much faith but this kind of faith does not go out except by prayer and fasting unbelief can keep us from our, our prayers from being answered James 5.16 here's one unconfessed sin 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another. You know, listen to me. If I have sinned against you, what good does it do for me to confess my sin to God? Hello? If I have sinned against you, first thing I need to do is confess my sin to you and ask for your forgiveness that I have sinned against you. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. See, you know, we, we tend to memorize James 5:16b, but we don't really want to get involved with James 5:16a, because that says we've got to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Proverbs 28:9. Lack of Bible reading. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You know, y'all know where I stand on, on homosexual relations, and we know that the Bible calls those kind of relationships an abomination. And we like to point that out to people like that. What we don't like to point out is that when we don't read the Word of God, God calls that an abomination. That our prayer is an abomination if we turn away from listening to the law of God. In verse 4, David calls on his enemies to lie awake and search their hearts when they went to bed. That's in contrast to, to David being able to go to bed and, and sleep well. In Psalm 3, 5, we saw last week, I lay down and slept. And I awoke for the Lord sustains me. And in our psalm tonight, psalm, or, uh, verse, or chapter 4, verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Do you understand? David is saying, God, here's my prayer. Don't let them get any rest until they repent. Don't let them get any rest until they repent. And again, David calls for a pause at the end of verse 4. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. David says, boys, I found the way to get a good night's sleep. I found the way to rest in God, and I know that it will work for you if you will just repent of your sin. Absalom is in a position, and, and he's trying to win everybody's favor. I mean, y'all know David was a popular king. That's what got him in trouble with, uh, with Saul in the first place. Saul is slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And that flew all over Saul. David had always been popular, one, because he was a man of, of passion. And two, because I believe David never forgot where he came from. David never let being king go to his head. He understood that he was there because that's where God wanted him to be. And he was going to be the best representative of God that he could, even in spite of all of his faults and his foibles. Absalom, though, is not very popular. 
And so what Absalom is doing is he's going to the temple and he's making sacrifices. He's, he's making a very public spectacle of religious observance without having a changed heart. He wants the people to believe that he is a different man than he really is. And he wants to persuade the people that they are actually doing God's will in overthrowing the king. And David is praying that the deception would be exposed and true sacrifices would be rightly presented to God. As believers, when our zeal is aroused to do what is right, we must be careful not to be deceived by evildoers. This is especially true in the church. Satan attacks the church from within. I said, Satan attacks the church from within. He will seldom attack us from without because he knows that we will do a far better job of destroying our testimony when he, when he attacks us from within. Sometimes he's able to stir up some carnal church member to rise up against godly leaders. And those who rise up in rebellion against godly leadership are never under the control of God's Holy Spirit. The New Testament epistles are filled with the names of ungodly people who rose up in the churches to stand against the apostles. David's call for his enemies to repent is an example for us in our dealings with other believers, especially when they're lying about us or attempting to hurt us. Note again that his enemies were family members. They were fellow country people and shares in God's covenant. And again, David's desire is for their repentance, not their destruction. I want you to understand that David's enemy's attempt to ruin him was vanity and delusion. It was a worthless pursuit. They were wasting their time and destroying their nation for something that could not possibly come to pass. If they continued, precious lives would be lost for no good reason. They needed to stop slandering David and stop destroying the nation with their lies. Verses 6 through 8. David again addressed God directly. He pled, look upon us, turn your face toward us. Let us see your light in the midst of our darkness. Give us a glimpse of your glory and loving favor. Let us see your face. David's plea is not to see God's hand. He doesn't call upon God to act powerfully and decisively on their behalf. He asks for God to show them His face. He desires more than anything else a manifestation of God's presence among them. These people were discouraged and nothing would encourage them better than a glimpse of God. The only thing that could lift their hearts was for God to lift up His countenance upon them. 
David asked God to do for them what God had done for him. Can we pray that prayer, beloved? Can we pray that prayer for our enemies? Can we pray that prayer for those that persecute us? Can we say, God, you have transformed my spirit. You have made me into a different person. And I pray, oh God, that you would do the same thing in their life as well. Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments... And keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. There is how we come face to face with Jesus. That is how we get the presence of God in our lives. Nothing could compare to that. Not even an abundance of grain and wine in the kingdom. David describes a joy that his faithful discouraged followers would experience that surpasses any material prosperity that they could imagine. And then David says, oh my, look at the time. I'm going to bed. I'm going to bed. I have prayed, I've laid it all out to God, and I'm going to bed. You would think that David would have his lieutenants and his generals around him and saying, okay, boys, here's what we need to do tomorrow morning. Or maybe we need to have a surprise attack on them tonight. They'd never expect that. No, David says, I'm going to bed. And he says, I'm going to lie down and I'm going to sleep soundly without terror of what the night could bring. He was encouraged by God tonight as he faced the battles of tomorrow. God and God alone was the source of his safety, and that was enough. God was awake so David could sleep. So can we. Beloved, we need God's presence more than we need his power. We need him more than the things that he can do for us. There was a song, again, not too long ago where it was a a woman singing and said, help me love the healer more than the healing. Help me love the blesser more than the blessing. And see, beloved, sometimes when we go to God, what we're more interested in is what he can do for us instead of who he is to us. David wants us to look at God as our constant companion, as our ever-present friend. All too often, we seek God's hand rather than seeking His face. And sometimes for that reason, God allows trouble to come into our lives to arouse us to seek Him. Paul told us in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. We undoubtedly need His help when we're caught in the midst of some trouble. But more than that, we need Him, the very light that only a glimpse of His face can bring. It is this revelation of Him that enables us, as James tells us in James 1-2, to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
One commentator said that God gathers the trusting soul into a place of safety by taking it away from all of the things which trouble or harass. The tried and tired child of his love is pavilioned in his peace. Isaiah said in Isaiah 43, 2. Did we get that one? All right, here it comes. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers... They will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That, beloved, is how we find peace and safety in God and have gladness in our hearts. Will we turn to him as David turned to him and allow God to fill our hearts with gladness even in our most difficult times?